It's Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance, balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Verdes, senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. Uh, good day, gentlemen. Let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in California. Um, Bill, I'm going to hand it over to you to first uh, talk about Lee's uh, recent article in California on your mind. Yeah, uh, for those of you who read um, our columns, uh, Lee usually goes on Tuesdays, I go on Thursdays, and uh, Lee has a column uh, that just got posted a short while ago, the uh, title of which is California's New Diversity Math Curriculum Will Fail 6 Million Kids Annually. Uh, the timing of this could not be better because um, this is Tuesday the 2nd, and uh, it is what uh, George W. Bush used to call voting day. Uh, there's an election going on um, in Virginia, which is of particular interest, a governor's race. And education is front and center in the Old Dominion, my home state. Uh, and it really swirls around uh, two things, critical race theory, uh, but also uh, transgender as well. And it just has kind of set that race afire. And uh, if the Republican wins, uh, which would seem sort of improbable because uh, he was a distinct underdog just a few weeks ago, but now he appears to be in the lead. It will be a close election, I think. Um, it's going to be education that flip things. Um, two things I'd like to point to here. First of all, um, if uh, Glenn Youngkin, who's Republican, wins, uh, the press are going to write about this education revolution going on in Virginia, what it means to the rest of the country. But I would point out to people that California uh, has already been speaking its mind on education in two regards. Um, the 2020 election and the June primary last year, uh, Lee and Jonathan, uh, we had a $15 billion education bond on the ballot. Uh, Governor Newsom was front and center campaigning for it. There was no real opposition to it. Uh, it was $15 billion for school construction, what was best for what ails California public schools, and it got shot down. The first time since 1994 that a school bond lost statewide like that. Then you go to the uh, fall election, guys, and there's Proposition 15, which proposed to do what? to rewrite Proposition 13, the business side of Proposition 13. And it was a very familiar playbook. It was all about schools, giving more money to ailing public schools. You saw teachers front and center in the campaign. And at the same time that Joe Biden was winning 63% of the statewide vote, it lost as well. So I would contend that in the age of COVID, when uh, parents are running out of patience with schools, you know, schools that dragged their feet in terms of reopening, and now what's going on inside the schools, uh, you're starting to see this pushback. And if it continues in California, I think it's going to continue along the lines of what Lee has written about. With, with that, Lee, why don't you explain exactly what is in your column? Yeah, thanks, Bill. The, uh, yeah, the situation in Virginia unfolding and it's looking like a potentially big negative for Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate in Virginia. Um, there's a lot of pushback now across the state among what people call CRT, critical race theory. It means different things to different people. The guideline for a really good theory is everybody understands what it is and how to test the theory. CRT is all over the place. I know no way of testing that. But California is now considering a change in their mathematics curriculum. 
And there's about 6 million children taking K through 12 public education each year in California. And my column today is titled California's New Diversity Math Curriculum Will Fail 6 Million Kids Annually. And uh, I discussed in this column um, an open letter that's been signed by nearly 1,000 of the most distinguished mathematicians and engineers and physicists and life scientists and those working in venture capital in STEM areas and those who are executives and scientists in the STEM industry um, who say this proposal to what really is gonna be watering down California's mathematics education um, is just remarkably wrongheaded. And I'll just give a quick, a quick quote uh, from the opening of that letter. Um, for all the rhetoric in this framework about equity, social justice, environmental care, and culturally appropriate pedagogy. So again, the idea of critical race theory is influencing this new proposed curriculum. There is no realistic hope for a more fair, just, equal, and well-stewarded society if our schools uproot long proven, reliable, and highly effective math methods and instead try to build a mathless, brave new world on a foundation of unsound ideology. And I've written a few California On Your Mind columns uh, in the last year about this tendency towards calling mathematics instruction racist and culturally insensitive and one that fails people of color. And the people, the folks who signed this, uh, this letter, um, including you know some of the best scientists and the best mathematicians in California, are spot on. The problem is not that our mathematics curriculum uh, and traditional mathematics instruction, which by the way is what is taught in Shanghai, China, mm -hmm. where Shanghai kids are over two grade levels ahead in math competency than kids in Massachusetts, which is our highest performing state in mathematics. Original math instruction is used in Shanghai, China. The big difference is that in Shanghai, China, really expert math teachers are who are in the math classrooms. Whereas in California, we have a lot of teachers who may be remarkably good teachers to some subjects, just aren't nearly at the same level. And um, we, again, are walking down a path that's going to leave our kids simply not competitive, not have the math competence to be able to compete for, not, not only just compete for interesting, creative, high-paying STEM jobs, but who aren't going to be able to complete high school algebra, high school geometry. Uh, and it's just, it's a, it's a real shame. It is 2018. Uh, California reported that just under 20% of Black students met math standards, while more than half of white students and nearly three-fourths of Asian students did. So there's a problem, Lee, here. Uh, one other uh, issue with this, I think, is that um, it doesn't allow gifted math students to uh, break away from other math students, which traditionally you do in, in schools. Well, that's absolutely right. The, the promotion of these new ideas that math and science are racist and we need to we need to make major changes to curriculum include the idea that everyone should be called gifted mm 
And if people are worrying about words, we can certainly come up with different words to denote those who are remarkably, who have remarkable competence and remarkable capacity to learn mathematics. Um, but we are going to wind up with really, really bright math learners who are going to be bored out of their minds because the proposal is to eliminate advanced and accelerated classes. And I have looked at the research findings that are cited in the California Department of Education's reports on proposing this curriculum, and I have not seen I have not seen one well-executed study yet. There simply is no factual or scientific statistical basis to draw the conclusions that they have. Um, you're absolutely right, black kids. Uh, black kids are about, only about 15% of black kids are proficient or above. Uh, and I'll just tell you that um, the, common core, the common core bar is not a particularly high one. And only about 20% of Hispanic kids are proficient or above. And Bill, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, uh, how far we have watered down mathematics. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know about you. We're sort of from the same generation. Um, you know, I remember doing multiplication in third grade. Um, what are, what will our fourth graders be doing so fourth grade, one year ahead in, in California, should this curriculum go through, fourth graders are still gonna be working on addition and subtraction. Mm -hmm. Sixth graders are gonna be working on, try to figure out why one third is a smaller fraction than one half. And I've looked at the lesson plans and the lesson plans set up an expectation among teachers that kids are just going to be struggling with the idea that one half is a bigger number than one third all the way in the sixth grade. It is a, it's a shame. I mean, as, as I indicate in the column, it's, it's heartbreaking as, as a teacher. You know, I'm a college teacher. As a teacher, it's heartbreaking to think that those in the education department don't have more faith in, in the remarkable brains of our kids that they're gonna be still struggling with fractions and what's a denominator and what's a numerator when they're 12 and 13 years old. Um, we are gonna get our clocks clean when it comes to mathematics and STEM and STEM, and, uh, STEM areas um, if we go down this road. Yeah, and this is just not a Los Angeles problem, folks. This is a California problem. So students uh, in California take what is called the California Assessment of Student Performance and Progress. Uh, it's designed to test common core concepts. Um, each year it's done. About 50% of uh, students who take this, Lee and Jonathan, meet the English standards, but only about 40% meet the math. So there's a fall off here. But um, I, I find this curious in this regard. Uh, I think Lee and Jonathan, I think COVID has lit a fuse uh, in schools across America. And it begins with Zoom. And, uh, you know, when you think about California's arrangement, we always talk about the rich poor divide in California, the haves and have nots or so forth. And COVID has underscored that in two ways. Uh, one is just economics, Lee. Um, you and I and Jonathan do what would pass for, I guess we'd call intellectual work for lack of a better word, but we are, uh, Peggy Noonan, the Wall Street Journal columnist calls it uh, the laptop economy. We can all do our jobs as we are right now, sitting on laptops and talking to each other over Zoom. But if you're not as well off in California, you usually 
do physical work. You have to leave the house, you have to go somewhere, and your kids need to go to school. And, and for those folks, I think schools in California provide two things. Number one is obviously the ladder, uh, up, you know, up the economic ladder, your kid gets an education, they go to college, and they have a chance to succeed in life. Secondly, it's a government subsidized form of childcare. Your kid gets into school, your kid's in school all day. If your school has an after school program, you can work and pick up your kid or he or she comes home on the bus. Zoom has blown up that arrangement. Or excuse me, not Zoom. The pandemic blew up that arrangement. And if you have to leave the nest every day and leave the kid, leave the kid behind on Zoom, you know, good luck with your kid's education. So I think parents are starting to realize that. And I think that in turn kind of triggers what sort of education my kids or, or your kids are getting, which then leads back into Virginia, where uh, in one county in particular, Loudoun County, what parents are upset about is the idea of CRT being imposed on their kids, which then spilled over into the governor's race where Terry McAuliffe, who was the favorite to win, had one of the truly great unfortunate lines in debate history where he said that essentially parents should not be deciding what their kids are taught. In other words, to, to borrow a line from Sheryl Sandberg, he leaned in with the education establishment instead of leaning in with parents bad political move. But what I'm curious about, Lee, is, you know, if you light a fuse, when exactly does the fuse go off in California and in what form? Do we see it? Do we see it in the form of local school districts coming on fire and school boards coming on fire as they are in Virginia? Do you see it manifesting, say, in lawsuits like the Begar lawsuit of a couple of years ago here in California? Or does it go up higher in the ladder? Does it eventually cost a governor his or her job? Do we see ballot measures? In other words, I think you're going to see at some point a sagebrush rebellion in this state as well as others, but it's just a question of what form it will take. Yeah, Bill, exactly. And it's, it's a tough one to predict. There certainly is a lot of pushback against the educational establishment in COVID. I agree with you entirely about you know, the issue of divides that were created among wealthy families that hired tutors, that bought software apps that taught kids, uh, versus families that didn't have high-speed internet, that may not have a dedicated computer to their children. Um, and this is creating, you know, ironically, this is creating more of the educational divides um, that California is, as, as quote, the most progressive state in the country is right. so much against. Um, and, you know, what I find, uh, what I find intriguing about what I, I mean, I really think this issue about CRT and calling math education racist and the idea that traditional math education was purely developed to guarantee elite white male success, uh, those who are going to Harvard and Princeton, <clears throat> I just find that silly. And you know, if people take a look at this letter, they're now, I think, um, the last time the signatory list was updated was, was sometime late in October. I suspect there's now over a thousand signatories. Um, I went ahead and I checked, <clears throat> I checked those who signed the letter whose last name begins with the letter A, okay? And in that group, I found people from Nigeria, mm -hmm. Russia, Italy, India, Iran. Mm -hmm. The mathematician from Iran is one of the most distinguished mathematicians in the country. He teaches at USC. He escaped a repressive regime and is now one of the leaders in the development of artificial intelligence that ironically is gonna be powering a lot of our military capacity in future mm -hmm. years. There are people who advise the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, the American Cancer Society. There's Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims on that list. So the idea that we need a more culturally sensitive pedag pedagogy and root out racism within math and science education 
right. is completely is completely silly. It's it, the, the right. problem is that we don't have enough qualified math teachers. And the right. solution is simply to hire more qualified math teachers to reallocate the budget. And you know, the longer this goes, the more upset parents get, the more voters, the more voters vote down, such as the bond measure you spoke about that didn't right. go through. Um, so I think what's going on in, in Virginia, and I, I feel for those people, um, you know, we'll see, if, you know, will, will that light the political fuse that spreads across the country mm-hmm. and really gets parents concerned and says, hey, you know what, it's not, it's not my fault, it's not my kid's fault, it's not curricula that's worked well in other countries, it's not that fault, hey, it's the education, it's the educational establishment's fault. Right. So here's one form in which the backlash could uh, could take shape in California, Lee. Um, and I wrote about this uh, uh, for this week's California in Your Mind column. And uh, if we look ahead to 2022 and initiatives, um, there will be probably a school choice initiative on the ballot. But the one that has my attention is one that has been proposed by Tim Draper. Uh, those of you who don't know who Mr. Draper is, he is a venture capitalist of, uh, of considerable renown. He uh, invested very early in Bitcoin, for example. He's worth about a billion and a half dollars, I think. And Mr. Draper uh, is something of a mad monk in California politics. He, back in 2000, he proposed a school choice initiative. It got skunked at the ballot. Um, he, um, twice in the last decade, uh, came up with ideas to break up California into smaller states. One, uh, one plan was to divide California six ways, and he had a, a plan to divide it three ways. Those never made the ballot. But here he is, Lee and Jonathan, with an initiative, uh, which is now about to enter the uh, signature collection phase. He has until uh, mid-April of next year to collect about a million signatures to, to get this on the ballot. What Mr. Draper wants to do is he wants to, in essence, emasculate public employee unions in California. He wants to take away their collective bargaining rights, uh, which they've had since uh, the mid-1970s when Jerry Brown granted them. And uh, Lee, if this happens, um, this seriously shakes up the order of things in California and Sacramento in particular. I will note this will be an uphill climb for Draper to pass this thing, beginning with just what the attorney general is doing to him. Back in 2000, when he proposed school choice, Lee, uh, Bill Lockyer was the attorney general at the time. The attorney general in California is uh, tasked with writing um, titles and summaries of ballot initiatives. So if it's a Democrat who hates a conservative idea, he does his best to really give it a rotten title. Uh, Republicans will do the same to liberal ideas. So in 2000, a Democratic attorney general gave Mr. Draper's initiative the following title, State-Funded Private and Religious Education. Ouch. <laughs> but here now we go to 2021, and here's the current title for Mr. Draper's initiative. Eliminates collective bargaining for teachers, police officers, nurses, firefighters, and other public employees. <laughs> note it doesn't say note it doesn't say government workers or bureaucrats or anything like that and other public employees but lee the idea of going after public unions like this you have written about public unions recently in california on your mind uh your thoughts on this yeah yeah you know uh those ads they always sneak in um the the holy four nurses teachers firefighters and police right. um not uh, not those union workers who are in the employment department who presided over 20 to 30 billion fraudulent claims. Not those people. Those people are never mentioned. Um, yeah. You know, Bill, it, uh, um, I think Brown's decision in the mid 70s to permit collective bargaining um, was really awful. And, uh, and I don't say that as being a non labor person, because that's how it will be interpreted. Um, but the idea that public employees should not have collective bargaining and the ability to strike available to them goes back to uh, FDR. 
And FDR argued forcefully about the critical problems that are involved when politicians and unions play with other people's money. And that's exactly what's going on. Taxpayers are funding politicians. Taxpayers are funding implicitly the unions. And unions and politicians get together. And this is the only time when you see a labor bargaining in which the more generous the outcome in the collective bargaining agreement, the better it is for both parties. <laughs> you just, you know, that, that just doesn't make sense. The reason it makes sense is because the union's happy. And if the union's happy, then politicians are happy because the union supports the politician. And um, I think Draper's initiative, um, it does face a huge uphill battle because there's going to be so much money spent by unions on this. Um, but if it does sneak through, it would be an enormous game changer. Um, and it's, it's important for people to understand just, just you know, for the lack of a better word, just how rotten it has become within Sacramento and, and also local governments um about what's going on so so uh so what i wrote about last week was um the director of uh, the uh, state employees um uh, the, i'm sorry the service employees international union which is california's largest public sector union right. she's been indicted on several felony counts ranging from embezzlement to about 1.5 million, million in tax fraud including her husband this is a person that earned about a quarter million dollars per year she's resigned from SEIU, which of course she has to, being indicted for a felony. But she sits on the boards of several other labor organizations, including the Mammoth California Federation of Labor. Um, and none of those other labor organizations have asked her to resign. No one in the Democratic Party has asked her to resign. The labor organizations um, that, that, that have her on their board have been contacted about whether she will be remaining on those boards. They have not responded for a comment. Um, the Democratic Party, um, again, which um, not to be partisan, but right now we have, uh, we have a single party and it's supported by unions and the Democratic Party is, is, is really circling their wagons. Um, so it's interesting that it looks like Democratic legislators were basically given the same talking points to tweet. So in San Jose, Democrats Dave Cortez and Ash Kalra sent matching tweets after Hernandez resigned. And a, another person was named as an interim replacement. The labor's movement strength comes from members united to fight for fairness and justice. SEIU California will not miss a beat, stronger together. So no mention of, of the resignation of Alma Hernandez, the person indicted for several felonies. Uh, a Berkeley Democrat in the Senate uh, tweeted almost the exact same. Workers organizing for fairness and justice, that's where the labor's movement strength comes from. SEIU California will not miss a beat. Uh, Angelino Assemblyman Miguel Santiago wrote, I think, Bill, you can probably predict what I'm going to say, SEIU California will <laughs> not miss a beat, stronger together. Um, there's not one mention about Hernandez anywhere. Um, there's not a tweet from the person who is taking over her position, uh, saying, I'm looking forward to leading the organization. It's all quiet on the front of the SEIU. And this, again, whether it's 
Democrat or Republican, this is just incredibly damaging. What unions and politicians hope for is that, is that voters are so busy trying to make their house payments and pay property taxes that they just won't notice this. So that's why the tweets are, uh, that's why these people are creating uh, the biggest wool pulled over your eyes in recent California political history. So this would be a game changer. And um, I really hope it goes through. It's, as you mentioned, it's fighting a huge uphill battle, Howard. There's going to be a lot of money pushed against this. Uh, gentlemen, speaking about uh, politicians and the aforementioned um, uh, Employment Development Department and um, California lawmakers on Monday, last Monday, grilled officials uh, from, the, from the state's EDD for deficiencies in its operations during the pandemic. Um, as you mentioned, it lost nearly 20 billion to fraudulent claims and currently has 140,000 backlogged claims. Uh, gentlemen, these lawmakers are talking about structural reforms, including updating the EDD's computer systems and hiring more workers. Um, but is this enough to reform and rehabilitate what appears to uh, be a broken, a broken system? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Jonathan, no, no, it, it's it's not close to enough, um, and it, it never will be. And, and the reason is because there's what. Okay, let, let, let me let me just back up for a moment. We had this enormous hearing, um, and the hearing was delayed strategically before the recall vote. But then, more recently, it's been delayed because they couldn't find a large enough room to contain the crowd that would be there and provides significant enough social distancing. So when we finally did have this hearing and we learned about the remarkable changes that are gonna be implemented within EDD, what we found is that there's still 140,000 workers whose claims have been backlogged for weeks. We found that the call center doesn't have the option for someone who is called in to push the number one or two or three to request a callback. That shocking innovative development that's available on every private sector call in number is not available on EDD. And when you think about just that one trivial change that's so obvious, you see exactly what the problem is with um, our governance now. There's no accountability. And when I say there's no accountability, you know, this isn't the first regulatory oversight rodeo of the EDD. We have had roughly, we have had oversights of EDD and reviews of EDD and commissions looking at EDD. I believe we've had five or six over the last 15 years. And the criticisms and the comments and the recommendations are always the same. And the reason they don't get done is that there's no accountability. Yes, there's no incentive to do a good job. If there was an incentive to do a good job within the EDD, then you know that novel idea about having you know giving callers the option of not hanging on the phone for four hours, but rather clicking clicking number one and getting a call back when it's available. Those things would be done. Um, right. A computer system that's 40 years old, uh, that, that it's just completely unacceptable. So until normal practices within an organization that lead to success, accountability, efficiency, incentives, leadership, until that is implemented, 
we'll have another one of these big room oversights in another three or four years. Right. So the um, the director of EDD, uh, Rita Sayans, Lee, has pushed back and said that, uh, look, at, uh, we have put in uh, new identity verification software. We have actually managed to uh, stop an estimated $120 billion in fraud attempts. Well, that's great, but let's go back and recount what happened last year. So uh, about 11% of all benefits in California, the $20 billion you mentioned, about $178 billion in all was was uh, was doled out by ED&D, $20 billion of which went to, to fraud, uh, 11%. And it's just almost comically awful what happened. So uh, at least $810 million in benefits uh, went to the likes of people who were in prison, including dozens of death row killers. Um, fraudulent claims came across the nation, criminals in other countries, while uh, you know postal workers, prison guards, and EDD employees were arrested on a suspicion of filing false claims. So we have two problems here, I think, Lee. One is what you refer to, and that is software in California. And um, I do not want to see the news administration create yet another task force that is always his go-to move. Let's create a task force. And as we've talked about several times, the infamous Steyer task force on the economy, the my favorite, the oxygen task force. Uh, these things tend not to really deliver much in the way of teeth. Um, I don't know if the state of California really has a technology czar in this day and age, but perhaps it's uh, it's time to think about some sort of technology office lead tasked with the idea of bringing the state really into the 21st century economy. I mean, my God, the state of California's government not having technology, it just that doesn't make sense. You would think if any state had to act together on tech, it would be uh, California uh, number one. Um, but then the second issue here is uh, is just going to be management of that department as well and uh, and accountability on it. So I'm not sure how often EDD comes forward with things. Uh, you're right, shame on the legislature uh, for not uh, for not doing this earlier, for pu- pushing it back to the recall. But again, this is the kind of thing that voters in California uh, need to be more aware of. And this, this is one of the challenges with being in California, uh, plain and simple. I worked for a governor back in the 1990s, and I learned a lot when I came here about California. And one of the first things I noticed about California was, unless you happen to be a former movie star, most Californians just don't pay attention to the guy in the governor's office. They just check out of the government, Lee, until something really criminally dumb happens, like what happened with ED&D. So, uh, you know, voters need to be more cognizant, but we also have to hold lawmakers more accountable and state officials more accountable as well. I mean, who's been fired from EDD over this? Well, you see that there, 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 that's the $64 question. So yeah. I believe if my recollection is right, I believe that the director who had been in place, um, and I think who was a lifer there, I believe he stepped down. And then the woman you just referred to mm-hmm. took his place as head. And I believe she's been there 37 years. And, um, you know, I'm uh, to use the old saw betting dollars to donuts. I bet that she really knows very little about the world of high technology. And this is essentially a tech EDD is essentially a technology company right now. And that, you know, quote, company should be run by people who know how to make a technology driven organization work efficiently and work accurately. And uh, and I find the response about well you know we're stopping we're stopping fraud now is um, is really you know it's very self serving because in two thousand I believe it was two thousand twelve um, an Obama administration grant to the department was used to purchase software from a third party vendor mm-hmm. which was remarkably successful at rooting out fraud attempts 
And I believe the uh, I believe it was about five million dollars, five million dollars a year. And then EDD and then the Obama administration grant ran out and then EDD decided that they didn't want to pay five million dollars for software that was incredibly successful at rooting out fraud. So they stopped paying for that software and that cost of five million dollars per year. Uh, now, this was in 2016, so carry that forward five years. That was $25 million for software. They probably could have bought their own programmers to write a program in five years that would have been essentially as effective. But anyway, you know, Pennywise Pound Foolish, $25 million uh, instead of um, $20 billion. Um, so these are the things that just don't happen in a well-run company. It just and if it does, then house is cleaned. And Bill, I and Bill, we've never had a house cleaning at EDD. The um, you know the dismissal rate of employees within state and local government for cause is a small fraction of what is in the private sector. And just to go back to the idea about unions and collective bargaining and and how awful some people might think it would be if unions don't have the right to collectively bargain. Right. Um, Compensation at the state and local government level in California is twice as high as in the private sector. They were about the same 20, 25 years ago. But since then, compensation for state and local government employees has skyrocketed to the point where taken as an entire package. I believe the I believe the average person in state and local California government has a total compensation package, including pensions of um, it was I think it was about. 160,000 a year as of 2015. Right. So that 160,000 a year now almost certainly is higher, probably much higher. Yeah. So ETD knew they had a problem going all the way back to 2016, as you mentioned, and they brought in this company, Pondera, to try to, to target, you know, theft. Um, so, you know, the final note on this, we'll, we'll jump back another topic. Uh, when in doubt, you find some weaselly person like me to try to spin your way out of this. And so the spin, which EDD is trying to say, look at, yeah, we've been ripped off to the tune of $20 billion. But you know what? Back in January, we thought it was it would be $31 billion. So this is a win. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the uh, yeah, you know, you know pr praise the Lord that it's not higher. <laughs> exactly. Um, last week, uh, Bill, you in your California on your mind uh, column, you wrote about the state's water problems. Uh, California Governor Newsom plans to reduce some environmental regulations, uh, but some people believe that there should be a comprehensive conservation uh, mandate. Bill, my question is, is this a good idea? And what are the possible solutions in your mind for policymakers to consider for water conservation? Well, I wrote the column uh, because uh, I read over the weekends and it was just bucketing rain. Uh, I'm in Northern California. Lee was down in Southern California. Lee, I think he got slammed on Monday, if I'm not mistaken, of that week. Uh, and this was just kind of diluvian stuff. I mean, it was raining in about four different directions and uh, just, you know, near a man nor beast would go outside in it. And it was much overdue rain. Um, but like all things in California, you know, it's complicated when it rains that like that. You don't need, you don't want a fierce, fast storm like we got. You want a slow drench. Just think about watering your lawn. You just want to have just a slow amount of water going over because why? The land of California is exceptionally dry because of the drought. And when it rains really hard like that, there's runoff. The soil in other parts of California is uh, been charred by fire. And so it's loose. And so it turns to mud really quick. But 
Yeah, what I got to thinking about was just comprehensive solutions and just what California should be doing. And there's just several several basic problems here, Lee and Jonathan. Um, it sounds odd to say, given uh, the drought, but California needs to look at storage. Um, if you want to raise a dam in California and create more storage space, you have hell to pay from environmentalists who will do their best to block it. So that's that's problem number one. Problem number two, um, something which the governor has not gone down the road yet, is he has not put in a real mandate on water use. He put out an executive order, uh, getting back to what Lee mentioned earlier about things that were kicked down the road uh, past the recall. He decided to get into the drought after the election was over. And so he called on everybody to restrict their water use, but there was no teeth in it. Uh, whereas Jerry Brown, when he was governor, called for an actual mandate. Here's the problem, getting back to our discussion about the rich and poor divide. If you live down in Rancho Santa Fe, which is a very wealthy community just north of San Diego, that it's a you know gated community. And one thing that people in Rancho Santa Fe live to do is they love to grow stuff because it's a perfect climate to grow fruit and flowers and vegetables and that kind of stuff. And they just water the bejesus out of their estates. And if you say, well, if you exceed your water use, we're going to fine. They'll say, bring it on. I'll write a check. Um, so, you know, water mandates in California are difficult to enforce. Um, but one thing I got to, and I'd like to get Lee's thoughts on this as well, is just where California were supposed to be a futuristic outfit. So why aren't we thinking outside the box? And the one area I looked at, because I guess, well, it's obvious, is we have a lot of water sitting offshore. We have a 1,300-mile coast. So what are we doing on desalination? And here we get into a lot of ugly local politics in California. San Diego um, uh, opened a desalination facility in 2016. They have a second one soon coming online. Uh, if you go up to Northern California, some smaller towns are doing desalination. Um, but the epicenter of this fight right now is in, of all places, Huntington Beach, which already has a water environmental issue in the form of uh in the form of the oil spill uh, last month. Uh, they want to do desalination. The company which um, uh, wants to build the desalination plant has spent years going through red tape and fighting environmental regulations and so forth. They think they're close to it. But this is kind of pushback, this nimbyism when you do this. And by the way, Lee, my favorite example of this on desalination, Monterey County went down the road in desalination and they were pushed back because desalination was seen as racially insensitive. You know, when... Uh... <laughs> but it's, it seems like we now live in a state where, you know, if all logical argument fails, then just pull out the race card race. Or, 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 you know, I don't know what other cards we can pull out. But, um, you know, the other um, about two weeks ago, I was thinking, you know, after 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 your your uh, your great column about water, I started doing a bit of research on this and um I found a Harvard Business School case study. So, you know, we all know about the famous case studies from Harvard Business School that are used to teach their MBA students. I found one from 1986, so 30, over 35 years ago, from the spring of 1986, mm -hmm. about the woes and tragedies and awful policy decisions within California about water allocation. Um, so this is 35 years old. And again, if, you know, um, some people play the race card, <laughs> you know, you, you and I can play the card of failure of accountability, kicking the can down the road. Um, and we have an historical record we can fall back on. And in this case, it's, um, it's 35 years. Um, you know, what's happened in that 35 years? Well, you know, Diane Feinstein has talked about the extreme, extremely damaging mistakes the state has made not to invest in water conveyance, not to invest in new water storage facilities. We don't even keep up the existing aqueducts and dams that we have. Um, you know, what was it? Uh, 
three years, three or four years ago, the Orville Dam broke. Um, and if we could just recapture the water that broke out of that dam, I wonder how many cities that that would irrigate and provide drinking water for, for how many years? Um, not to mention the 190,000 people that had to be evacuated because of, uh, because of the risk that the dam's failure provided. Um, you know, at the same time, I was looking at, you know, what you, you noted about desal, which, uh, which technologically appears to be the, channel, the direction for the future. And I found a story from back in 2009 about delays, uh, more delays for San Diego's desal plan. Mm -hmm. um, so that was back in, uh, that was back 12 years ago. So desal is expensive. Um, the technology will continue to advance and it will get safer and more environmentally friendly and cheaper. Um, but right now it's relatively expensive. It depends of course on a bunch of details, um, but we make it even more expensive by dragging these things out for years and years at a time. Um, and if you're gonna approve a desal plant, then figure out what we need to do and get it done. Um, we waste enormous resources. We waste enormous time. Um, I guess attorneys are happy with all the lawsuits involved with getting these, these things permitted. Um, and it's not just housing that we've talked about so many times, Al. Housing, right. housing developments can be, can be postponed for 40 years. Um, but it's water as well. And, um, you know, The Economist magazine um, I think has had as many as 15 or 18 articles over decades talking about California water policy mistakes. So again, you know, it, it really boils down to voters just becoming angry and asking their representatives, <laughs> either you give me reliably reasonable place water uh, or not, either you give me reasonable schools or not, either you give me reasonably priced housing or not, you know, you have to deliver. Um, and Bill, you're absolutely right. Politicians have to be held accountable and there's way, way too many losses and not nearly enough, enough wins. So, so, so two ways to look at this, Lee. One, you can uh, be over in Glasgow, Scotland right now, um, as is a considerable contingent of California lawmakers. Uh, interestingly enough, Governor Newsom did not go over. He uh, cited a family obligation, so I hope all is well in the House of Newsom, but uh, shocked he wasn't there. But So you can go over there and just pontificate about climate change and condemn California's climate, or you can maybe think that, well, it's going to rain here in California at some point, and maybe since weather is cyclical, we're going to get some storms, even though we're in a La Nina system right now where you have uh, dryness in parts of California. But what this gets to um, is back to the idea of storage, Lee, but also the idea of capturing runoff water. And I'm going to depress everybody now with a, with a stat here. So if you want to write this down and do the math, folks, here we go. Hopefully you have better math skills and the poor kids in our California schools right now. So uh, the U.S. Geological Survey uh, has as part of it what it calls the California Water Science Center. And what they do is they measure how much water California loses each year. So far um, this year, and what is a rather dry uh, year in California, the state Lee has lost 11.3 million Olympic, Olympic pools worth of water. That's take a 50 meter pool and the water in it, it's about 660,000 gallons of water and about 326,000 gallons of water is enough to cover about an acre of land one foot deep. So all of this water is getting lost when it rains, it goes, you know, eventually just moves its way into streams, it doesn't get captured, runs off to sea and so forth. So this is part of the California, you know, challenge moving forward. And again, Lee, it gets back to this question of technology and thinking outside the box. And surely, since we're a very creative, imaginative science, you know, scientific community, 
we should be able to find ways to capture water. I, I know it was, it was Mark Twain who said that what whiskey is for uh, drinking and water is for fighting, but maybe this is one of those issues where, you know, Californians need to come together and decide that, you know, despite our differences, we all need water. You know, um, uh, Bill, I'm guessing it's about, is it about a three hour drive from you to Sacramento? Is it about three hours? Um, no, it's a, about two and a half on a good day if you're lucky. And well, during the pandemic, yeah, it was even less than that. But now, yeah, if you don't do it at a rush hour, it's a little over two and change. Okay. Okay. All right. So two plus hours from Sacramento to Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. home of some of the most remarkable businesses and innovative creators you know, in the world. Uh, there's a company that created a phone that sits in all of our pockets um, that presently is 60,000 times more powerful than the computers that put the first Apollo astronauts on the moon safely. Um, So I'd like to think that those folks could maybe have something to say about capturing rainwater and not having it run off into streams in the ocean. Um, uh, I mean, of course I'm being facetious here, but um, again, we go back to the idea uh, about if voters just knew Um, And if I wish more Democrats would push back against their party and say, you know what, I'm I'm mad as heck and we're going to actually make some progress. My constituents deserve this because there are plenty of Democrats who who are serving very, very poor districts who are the ones who are hurt most by these failures. That's a great point about Silicon Valley, Lee. If you buy that phone, what does it say on the box? It doesn't say made in California, but it does say designed in California, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking of that company, by the way, which has a fruit as its logo, uh, I broke down, Lee, and I bought the watch the other day. And here's why. This is a confessions of an old man. I swim for exercise. I try to swim a mile every day. And I'm getting to the point where either I'm too old or I'm distracted. I can't count laps anymore. I get halfway through. I lose the count and laps. It drives me crazy. And I have just kind of this strange mind where if I get out of the pool and think I haven't swum, you know, if I swum too few laps, it'll eat at me all day. So the watch does have a lap counter on it. It's great. But here is, uh, I think the fruit, the aforementioned fruit company needs to maybe look at its uh, software a little bit in this regard. Uh, their products are great uh, in terms of setting up. Uh, if I weren't doing this for a living, I'd be, I think, a, a crash test dummy for them in terms of idiot proofing things because I tend to be an idiot on this stuff. So I got my watch and I synced it to my phone and we're off to the races. And you know what pops up after I've signed in is William Whalen and so forth, Lee? It shows me how I can keep track of my menstrual cycle. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I have to report that my cycle is doing well today for some reason. I've got to, I have to check in with my much tech savvier nieces and ask them, how do I get rid of this? But uh, anyway, so once again, I guess we're blurring the gender lines in California, but Jonathan, back to you. <laughs> Let's talk for a minute about a moment about the, um, the, the politics of uh, recall, recall politics in California. Uh, it appears that there might be enough signatures to recall San Francisco District Attorney Chase Abudin uh, yeah. for the city's soaring crime rapes. And perhaps some of the city's school board members may also face a recall over parent frustration that the board lacked a plan for getting the ch- their children back to school this fall, uh, despite San Francisco's low COVID-19 infection rates. Uh, what, uh, Bill, what might these recalls, why might these recalls succeed, uh, whereas the efforts to oust Newsom failed? 
So it's interesting, um, and I'm going to invoke Virginia yet again in this. Uh, there's a journalist named Selena Zito who came to note in 2016 because she had the uh, uh, the nerve to actually get in a car and drive around America and ask people what they thought about Donald Trump and, and the country. And she found out that there are a lot of people out there who felt left out economically. They felt that people on the East Coast and West Coast looked down upon them, and they saw Trump as kind of their savior, the person who you know who you know spoke their language. Even though ironically, Trump really has nothing to come of those folks in terms of lifestyle and so forth. So Selena Zito uh, hopped in a car and she drove around Virginia. And what she came to the conclusion of, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, what she said, uh, if Glenn Youngkin, who's a Republican in that governor's race, if he wins on Tuesday, it's not because uh, Virginians all of a sudden fell in love with Republicans. It's because they are pissed off. And um, you look at San Francisco. Yes, they uh, will likely have a recall election against Chesa Budin, who is the uh, um, who's the uh, uh, district attorney, a job Kamala Harris once held. They may have a recall against uh, three uh, school board members as well. And you might see this happen down in Los Angeles where George Castone, ironically a former San Francisco DA, uh, is now under fire. He holds that job in Los Angeles. And there's been one effort to recall him. It failed. There's a second one underway. In short, what you have is San Francisco's are pissed off um, about their city right now. And it's crime. It's a combination of people are being let out and they get on the street and they do bad things. Uh, secondly, uh, crime is not really in, uh, enforced in California in terms of cracking down. You've all heard and read about uh, about uh, Walgreens uh, pulling out of San Francisco. I'll give you another example that just happened the other day. There has been uh, since forever a 24-7 Safeway in the Castro District. You can go there any time of the day and get goods. A lot of people like to go in there in the dead of the night. And boy, if you enjoy people watching, that's where you want to be at two o'clock in the morning in San Francisco. It is a it is a show, to say the least. Well, because shoplifting is out of control in San Francisco, Safeway has now decided to close from the hours of 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. And this is the city in which you live in San Francisco now. And just basically people are ripping off things left and right. And there's crime on the streets. And you're just mad about the direction of the city. Then you pile into that, that the San Francisco Unified School District just thoroughly, thoroughly dragged its heels on reopening. So people are pissed. And I think they're looking for somebody to take it out on. And Chase Abudin becomes a rather convenient target for that. And it's a curious thing because Mr. Budin and uh, Mr. Gasco and Dad of Los Angeles, they're not DAs. They're public defenders at the end of the day. They're in the wrong jobs. Yeah, I mean, Bill, yeah, exactly right. The, um, <clears throat> I mean, there's been two recall efforts <clears throat> regarding Budin, and um, he hasn't even been on the job for, I don't think he's been on the job for two years yet. I think yeah. he took office in January 2020. So right. less than two years, two recall efforts. Um, I believe recently two of his key assistant DAs who who have said publicly um, that they're committed to restorative justice and, 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 and trying to rehabilitate those who engage in crime, um, not only have quit, uh, but they've joined the recall effort and they've publicly They've publicly chastised Budin for not putting the safety of San Franciscans first. Um, I believe one of them, one of them, I think it has been, I believe has been in the DA's office for 30 years. I think he says something like Budin's goal is not public safety. His goal appears to be what 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 is best for the for the criminal. And um, I believe Billy, you'll, you'll know this better than me, but I believe Budin released. A uh, and a, a person had been arrested who had I think he had maybe as many as ten prior felony convictions, several of them of them violent, and he was going to be facing a life sentence. Um, right. 
and Putin released him. And, uh, and the fella then committed several, uh, several car robberies. And then I, I believe he hit two pedestrians, killing both. Um, and right. this person who had had, you know, eight or 10 previous felony convictions, um, and was probably going to be facing a life sentence, uh, was released by Putin. So, um, yeah, as Tip O'Neill says, all politics is, is local. Um, so you really come under the magnifying glass when you're hitting home and that's what local politics does. And, um, I suspect Mr. Budin is going to be out and then it becomes what is, is it, is it London Breed's call? Does she, does she name a replacement? And then when the next election cycle comes along, then there'll, there'll be a vote. There will be. And this will be an interesting race uh, contest because unlike the recall in California, Charles ultimately became a Republican versus democratic affair. San Francisco is an overwhelmingly democratic town. So this is going to be Democrats and Democrats. But in case you doubt that laws have consequences, what you see in San Francisco, part of the problem here is that California changed its laws not too long ago. Um, if you, um, if you, if you were caught entering an open business, with the intent to steal less than $950 worth of property, uh, it's shoplifting out of California and it's treated as a misdemeanor. In other words, you're not going to do any time for it. And that's the deal. So you see people just going into stores now and they steal for two reasons. Number one, the cops are just not going to show up and catch you. And even if you're caught, it's turnstile justice. You're going to be back on the street. So this is why you see people, you've, uh, you've all probably seen the footage of people in the pharmacies in San Francisco just going in and grabbing stuff. And, you know, once again, we're back to racial injustice, Lee, because when this video was sure, first shown, it was what? This poor guy is struggling. He's doing this because of oppression and he's just trying to you know take care of himself and feeding his family. No, this is theft, this, you know, theft, plain and simple. But San Francisco went cracked down on it. And eventually getting back to our idea of just, you know, pushing back on education, Eventually, voters have had enough. And we saw this in California back in the 1990s with the likes of Proposition, you know, various, you know, three strikes and other things, which, you know, really cracked down on crime because people were upset with the idea just that we were not keep, keeping people, you know, away from the rest of society who are doing bad things. And I don't know if we're heading toward a crime backlash in California like that, Lee, but you can clearly see that this theft situation is just freeing people. And ironically, it's freeing them in, you know, in a town where people would pride themselves on tolerance and willingness to, you know, look askance from a lot of mischief. Yeah, I mean, within California, um, I mean, crime ranging from um, violent crime, including murder, is up a third. Yeah. Um, Car burglaries within San Francisco um, are just out, out of control uh, to the point where people are leaving signs in their windows saying, you know, nothing of value. Please, please, look, please look elsewhere. And, uh, you know, there's two there's two uh, campaigns right now. There's Safer Without Budin, which is the recall campaign organization. And then there's the Stand with uh, Chesa campaign. And um, I, I remember seeing on the news that there was a rally organized by the Stand with Chisa team. And um, I don't think there were 30 people there. Um, one of them was uh, a city supervisor um, who was one of the defund, defund the police folks. Um, and I think what you're going to be seeing is um, he is so unpopular now. You see a lot of progressive Democrats moving away from him. I think, you know, he's going to be yeah, you know, I, I don't want to use the, the term fall guy because I think he really is responsible for much of the, the crime problems within the city. Um, but you've got people, um, even even in more liberal parties, even in parties such as the Green Party, uh, saying, look, you know what? I believe in re reform, reformative justice as well, but that is not what he is practicing. So... Uh, I suspect his uh, his days uh, his days are, are numbered. Um, I believe 
40% of his attorneys have resigned uh, or he's fired them perhaps because they didn't have the right political views. Um, but this is just a disaster for someone who's been in office, you know, less than, less than two years. Yeah. Just as a, a final question, gentlemen. Um, and this is a case in Englewood, California of, of a football game last Friday. Um, Inglewood Morningside, uh, this is what USA Today reports, Inglewood Morningside and Inglewood High School faced off Friday in a matchup decided well before the opening kickoff. The final score reflected that. Inglewood 106, Morningside 0. Um, Inglewood led 59-0 to zero after the first quarter, and their running clock didn't start until late in the second quarter. The team attempted a two-point conversion while up 104 to nothing. And quarterback Justin Martin, who committed to the UCLA Bruins last week, threw 13 touchdown passes. Uh, quote, it was a classless move, said the losing side's coach, Morningside, Brian Collins. Um, what is, gentlemen, what does this say about, um, I guess, our education system? Should we t- teach a little bit more about sportsmanship and citizenship? Well, let me let me jump on this first and I'll let Lee close because he is uh, raising a young man who's athletic and I'm sure he's had these conversations. So, yeah. So um, here is Inglewood High uh, up, uh, up 104 to zero. Uh, their star quarterback still in the game despite throwing 13 touchdowns. His arm must have been falling off by then. And they go for two to run up to 106. So this is classless. And the Inglewood High principal had to apologize one of the problems here, folks, is technology. Uh, not to bore you with the intricacies of California high school football, but uh, all high school teams aspire to go to the playoffs. The playoffs are determined by something called the California Interscholastic Federation, which feeds all its data into a computer. The computer then seeds high schools. And so when you win 106 to zero, you go up in the computer. So that's in part why the coach is jacking up the score. That plus, I guess, he's particularly classless. But, you know, Lee, for all our talk about curriculum in California schools and trying to teach to his math and trying to get them on the straight and narrow, giving a chance in life. It would seem that here in Inglewood, which is, you know, a very challenged part of Los Angeles, plain and simple, kids need to learn about sportsmanship. Um, yes, these are, these are kids who are between the ages of uh, <clears throat> 14 to 17. And these are the, some of the most important years for learning. Um, and, um, and rubbing it in, um, and making and going for the two point conversion <clears throat> in the 11th hour uh, to try to boost their seating in the state computer. Um, what's, uh, what's ironic about that is that is about, <clears throat> that is about 180 degrees away from all of the culturally sensitive and pedagogical and criticisms of how we do things in school. Um, I'd love to see what those folks who are advising us about how to teach math have to say about how do we teach sports. Um, and, um, you know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it at that, but it's, it's, it's a bit of a black eye uh, among California in our, uh, in our sports, in our, in our sports leagues. It is uh, it is a shame that that happened. Thank you gentlemen for your excellent and timely analysis. Thank you, Jonathan and Lee. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. 
Again, this is Jonathan Mavroida sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.